0: The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: What really happened to TWA Flight 800? The flight that mysteriously exploded and crashed into the Atlantic shortly after takeoff from JFK Airport on July 17, 1986, killing all 230 people aboard? While initial reports suggested a terrorist attack, FBI and NTSB investigators later blamed a fuel tank explosion. But experts and skeptics have long questioned the official story, and new evidence has surfaced that suggests a widespread cover-up of the truth. Tonight's special guest reveals shocking new evidence about what really caused the crash and who was responsible for the massive cover-up that followed. He introduces new documents and testimonies that reveal the true chain of events, from the disastrous crash to the high-level decision to create a cover story and the attempts to silence anyone who dares speak the truth. To save the face of the Clinton administration before the November elections, Clinton cronies in the FBI, the CIA, the NTSB, and the media soon became involved. We'll discuss how the FBI fabricated, twisted, and ignored dozens of eyewitness testimonies why the cia's absurd zoom climb theory contradicts the facts what happened to video footage of the plane's destruction the real story behind the bomb sniffing dog training exercise that supposedly left traces of explosives on the plane why TWA flight 800 was likely hit by at least one missile and what was the probable source conspiracy theories have been around since the crash But those theories don't take into account the new evidence provided by tonight's special guest. Tracking down dozens of witness testimonies and relentlessly sifting through evidence buried in government paper trails. He looks squarely at all the possibilities. He dismantles the official version of what happened on that tragic July night and takes a look at who is to blame for hiding the truth and why they did.
0: You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have Rebounders, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselwick.
1: Dr. Jack Cashel has a PhD from Purdue University and is a weekly contributor to the WorldNet Daily website. An executive editor of Ingram's Magazine, Cashel has written for Fortune, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and The Weekly Standard. And directly from Kansas City, Missouri, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jack Cashel. Hello, Dr. Cashel, and welcome to Veritas.
2: Hey, Mel, thanks for having me on. It's always a
1: pleasure. It is my pleasure. And may I call you Jack? Yes, you may. Well, before we begin, and for the record, you may have heard me say, folks, that I lived in Asia for a little while in the mid-90s. Well, July 17, 1996, and the explosion of TWF Flight 800 made a huge impact on me because the next day, I believe it was Thursday, July the 18th, I left San Francisco to Hong Kong and Singapore, and I didn't know what really happened to TWF 800. So at first, I thought it was a terrorist attack. So obviously, that concerned me since I was to leave the day after. So I've been following this story for years, and I'm so privileged to have you on to discuss it. But Jack, how did you first become interested in the crash of TWA 800 and the subsequent investigation?
2: Uh, Not uh, intentionally, and uh, about um, it was probably about four years after the crash. A part of it is living in Kansas City, which is the uh, historic home of TWA. So there are uh, literally hundreds of former TWA employees still living in the area. At the time, in fact, in 1960, TWA overhaul base was still here. They had moved the headquarters to St. Louis. But um, so I attended an event uh, held by this uh, political club to which I belong, uh, which featured James Sanders and his wife, Elizabeth. They had been, James uh, had been uh, like the first uh, investigator on the scene, the first journalistic investigator on the scene. And he had already written a book on on the, the incident called The Downing of TWA 800. And he had come to the conclusion uh, through his sources inside the investigation that the plane, in fact, had been shot down as a result of a naval misfire. At that time, in the year 2000, this was still a wild conspiracy theory, you know, beyond the fringe. And uh, yet, when I went to the uh, event, I had, had overlooked the fact that, you know, TWA was based here. So there are like literally hundreds of people there, virtually all of them TWA people. And they were totally on board um, with what Sanders was saying. And we went to dinner afterwards, since I was on the board of this uh, club. And I ended up sitting next to James's wife, Elizabeth, who had been a trainer for TWA and a flight attendant. And she's really sweet, pretty Filipino-American. And when I heard her story, uh, and that she too, she and James had both been arrested on conspiracy charges and convicted in a federal court. for Jim's reporting on this, uh, and they were still on probation uh, when 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 I met them. Don't it, it, tell me that this story may be bigger than I anticipated and more real. Uh, they don't go to those kind of lengths to silence just anyone. They usually silence people who know the truth, not the people who don't. And that's how I got involved.
1: That's right. Why that's stupid? what They said.
2: Follow the money. They're all angry. You know, the question was why? Uh, and people tend to say follow the money. Money... And yet there is always that element, but it's never fully explanatory rarely fully explanatory. It doesn't explain all of the, you know, all behaviors, just some behaviors. But from the TWA perspective, they believed that the employees believed that it was the death of their airline. And it cost them, you know, not only uh, the loss of 53 of their co-workers who were on that plane, it was deadheading. Many of them were deadheading back to Paris, but uh, it also cost them. You know, their pensions, their livelihoods, you know, their futures. So they were angry. Uh, but after the next morning, I, I went to breakfast with uh, the Sanders, Jim and Elizabeth. And uh, I at the time, I was making documentaries. And I asked them if anyone had ever made a documentary about CWA Flight 800, and no one had. So we got to talking about it. And, Mel, I said to them, uh, you know, I'm not interested in doing a documentary if if. If the bottom line is, you know, this might have, could have happened. You know, I think that blah blah blah. I said, unless this, unless your theory is, you can prove this theory to me beyond reasonable doubt. I don't want to do it, but if you can prove it, then I am, I'm all in. So they invited me down to uh, Fort Lauderdale, where they're they're then living, and um, I went down. But before going down, I read the two mainstream books that had been already written about TWA 800. One was by Patricia Milton, the AP reporter. And the other one was by uh, the uh, Negroni, Christine Negroni, who is the reporter for CNN. And they both made the very convincing case, the government case. I won't say very convincing, but the plausible case that this was a, uh, you know, mechanical failure that people thought it originally it was about terrorists, but it wasn't. And now, it's all been put to bed, and, and only the only people who would insist otherwise were conspiracy theorists. So that's when I became a conspiracy theorist. Actually, I became a conspiracy theorist after spending three days with the Sanders and going over Jim's material, which included all the eyewitness statements, which the reporters, uh, mainstream reporters, had not even bothered to talk about other than to dismiss, like, oh, it's a handful of kooks out there who thought they saw something. Well, not exactly. Uh, the FBI interviewed 758 people who thought they who saw some element of the explosion. 256 of them saw an object ascending uh, towards the uh, plane, and I believe it was 96 of them traced that object from the horizon. And the object they traced, the descriptions they gave, uh, uh, paralleled the very descriptions you would give for a missile attacking an airliner. You know, and since this uh, took place in 1996, at which time only about 12% of Americans were on the internet. Uh, it didn't have the kind of traction locally it might have had just a couple years later. So the people who saw the missiles uh, thought they were, you know, maybe the only ones who had or just one of a handful of had. And they, you know, tended to doubt themselves except for the people who really saw it very well and never doubted
1: Do you think the government could have covered up this event today as they did in 1996 with the, the event of no, social media? No, uh, the
2: story, the, the story would, have been, they would have been busted in a day, especially now with uh, Elon Musk on Twitter. But <laughs> it's exactly the kind of story that the Twitter of two months ago would have shut down. But you no, I, to- I became one at that time. You used uh, all I to, to do is check my Wikipedia page to learn I'm a conspiracy theorist, you
1: know? You used to rain on the paranoid parades of others. What made you change?
2: <laughs> I did that. You're quoting
1: me there. <laughs> I am. So what made you change then?
2: Uh, it, what made me change was that uh, the Sanders convinced me that they were right. That this was, in fact, a uh, um, a shoot down of a um, of the T-800. It wasn't a mechanical failure. The, the evidence for a mechanical failure <laughs> was non-existent. There's none, <laughs> and uh, you know it, when you have a, and I I've, I've talked to people about this because we all like to read conspiracies now and to I just about everything, but to for a plausible one, I mean for one that you're going to have confidence in, one that you're going to write a book around, all evidence has to point in the same direction. You can't just have a series of, of, um, of improbabilities. You know, I I hear this with TWA Flight 800 a lot. You know, and they'll say. Well, you know, the, some scientist at, uh, I'm sorry, not TWA, yeah, September 11th, a scientist, an engineer at Brigham Young University said, blah, 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 blah. Well, that may be so, but you're asking us to deny the things we saw, you know. Millions of people saw, I mean, thousands of people saw up close, including my daughter. Others of us saw on TV, seeing planes crash into a building. You can't just dismiss that evidence. All evidence has to point in the same direction. So with TW eight hundred, it did. The more the more I got into it, the deeper I got into it, the more convinced I was that they were the Sanders were right. Now, initially, when we made our documentary Silence in two thousand one, I didn't want to believe that it was the Navy that did it. I would I was much more comfortable thinking it was a terrorist uh, incident that the Navy either tried to thwart or that. Uh, was took place independent of the Navy because the evidence. Uh, I was just I was in a state of uh, confirmation bias and I just didn't want to believe that. So Jim, I think, uh, obliged me when we made the documentary and we just left it at a missile hit the airplane. Plus, there were some serious people within the, the naval establishment who were willing to go forward, but they did not want to go forward with uh, naval misfire.
1: Later. I'll- Later, I'd like to bring up someone, I saw a video years ago, apparently a retired sailor, but I'll, I'll mention that later. There were more than 700 witnesses to the crash and its aftermath, but there were some who refused to be interviewed by the FBI, which means there were many more. Why did they refuse to cooperate?
2: You know, they, uh, they may have been uh, ahead of their time in terms of distrusting the FBI, but they didn't want to get dragged in. and. Probably the clearest case is a woman named uh, – I know her name. I'm not going to say it. That was her, she goes by witness number 73. That was her official FBI number. No one saw things more clearly than she did. You have to remember this was at uh, – this took place at 8.30 on a summer night, midsummer night, uh, right off the coast of uh, Long Island, which is a total beach from one end to the other. And, you know, there's like literally millions of people who live there. Thousands would have been out, you know, hundreds of thousands. Looking at the skies, or out on their deck, or you know, on the beach, whatever. And but the one woman witness, seventy-three, was particularly good because she was a uh, a travel professional. She was used to, she was pretty knowledgeable about aviation, and she did what the CIA said no one did, and that is she saw the plane and the missile independent of each other. So she was looking at CW eight hundred, and she knew enough to know that it was flying lower than she would have anticipated it to be at uh, at that stage, at that point from New York City. So they're, you know, they're 12 minutes out of JFK. And uh, the reader was a reason. She was actually right, because another plane was crossing overhead, and they, they kept the altitude lower than normal, which unfortunately uh, led to TWA 800's demise. It was at about 13,000 feet. And then she sees the uh, the other object ascend from the horizon, and she describes it. To the FBI, there or two later, just as anyone would describe a missile, you know, uh, flaming red tip, smoky contrail, zigzagging, correcting. She used a phrase that corrected like an upside down Nike.
1: Nike, yeah.
2: Yeah, and uh, and then it hits the right wing. And then she describes or hits a, a round that could have been a, you know, out, outside or beyond the right wing. But in that vicinity, it didn't need to actually hit the plane. Uh, and uh, so then, as she also described, the breakup sequence of the plane in uh, perfect detail before the NTSB or FBI knew what it was because they had yet to, you know, map out the debris field. So she tells the FBI this. And her uh, fiancé was furious uh, when he heard that she had – he wasn't there. She was there with his the fiancé's, I believe, sibling and, or friends and uh, – They were adamant. They didn't want to talk. They were appalled that she would talk. Uh, But she went ahead and did it anyhow. And um, then sometimes later, here's where the story gets interesting in her case. I mean, she's probably one of the 10 or 20 best eyewitnesses. But um, many years later, in 2009, this is after our documentary came out and after our first book, First Strike, came out, I get a call from her out of the blue. And she goes, Jack, uh, uh, this is a uh, TWA 800 witness number 73. Do you know who I am? I said, upside down Nike arc, <laughs> Nike swoosh. Yeah, right. She goes, that's it, right? You got it. I said, oh no, I haven't followed your case well. And she goes, I wanted to tell you about the second interview uh, that the NTSB, the CIA listed and the FBI listed in their uh, interview accounts. And in the second interview, which took place several months after the initial one. The FBI uh, reportedly, and this is on an FBI 302, it's written up, uh, went back to visit with her. And she told them this time that, yeah, okay, she had been drinking, she had had several Long Island iced teas, which is a a drink unique to Long Island, I guess. And that um, maybe she didn't see it quite the way she saw. Maybe she just thought she saw it and, Maybe it would kind of look something like this, and yeah, maybe it was that that plane in crippled flight imitating the, the missile uh, trajectory. And so I said to her when she called, I said, "Yeah, and tell me why you changed. Uh, you were so precise the first time. Why did you change uh, your testimony the second time the FBI came?" And she said, "Well, there's some there's a story there." And I said, "Tell me." She goes, "Well, oh, first of all, she goes." I don't know what a Long Island iced tea
1: is, right? (laughs) She doesn't drink.
2: Yeah, that's what I said. I said, you sure it wasn't some kind of drink? She goes, I don't drink at all. I would remember that, you know? And then she finally dropped the bombshell. She goes, there was no second interview. And then I told her, you're not the only one they did this to. They made up interviews out of whole cloth for at least four people, probably the four best eyewitnesses. You know, when the Actual interview did not conform to the uh, the, the theory that the CIA slash FBI was peddling. They simply went back in and made up new interviews. No, there was another twist on this, uh, and uh, I got it. You know, when when my book came out in two thousand sixteen, T W eight hundred crash cover up the conspiracy, which is actually they're putting out in paperback this summer. Um, I saw, I got some calls, interesting calls. One I got was an Ottawa Anonymous. One I got was a guy from Raytheon. And Raytheon, uh, guy, said to me, you really need to talk to the head of the FBI missile team. Now, I was aware of the head of the FBI missile team. I didn't know him by name. But uh, I said, uh, I said, I'm. I, what's his name? He goes, you talk about him in the very first, in the opening of your book. He's not, I'll tell you his name right now. He's, you know, he wanted to stay quiet, but he's I think we're reaching the point where uh, he has an obligation to come forward. His name's Steve Bondgaard. and uh, he was listed as the one of the two FBI agents who interviewed this uh, woman, number seventy-three, the second time. Except he didn't. Bongard was a straight shooter. He was the head of the FBI missile team, as we learned, as I learned from reading the CIA documents which we unearthed. Uh, Within a week or two, two weeks of the crash, he reported to his superiors that they had interviewed 144 excellent, their word, eyewitnesses to a missile attack on the airline. The CIA um, analyst, and his name, I'll tell you too, is Randolph Tauss. Anyone knows him? Uh, Tauss uh, tells the FBI, pressures the FBI to uh, suppress that report. Right? This is two weeks after the crash. And Bond a straight shooter. He, uh, you know, he, you know, when I went in 2016, he wanted to stay out in a limelight. Uh, and, you know, I respected that. But he sent me an email saying, yeah, you're on the right track, Jack. This is, you got it, you know. Um, and I, now, six years later, you should be in the clear. His children should be old enough now that they can fend for themselves. Twitter is back in the hands of the sane Uh, You know, truth has a new, new, some new possibilities it didn't have just a month or two ago. So I think I'll share his name here with the public. Uh, No, but he's a good guy, straight shooter. He also uh, blew uh, blew the whistle on the wall, uh, that uh, famous wall that separated uh, the CIA from the FBI allegedly did before September 11th that kept them from communicating with each other allegedly. And it led Perhaps to the uh, intelligence failure that preceded uh, 9 11. So it's a complicated story.
1: Well, another interesting aspect of all of this, and I remember two days after this event, the openings of the the opening ceremonies of the Summer Olympics were to start. So imagine this the nation is still reeling from the loss of life, 230 souls. Do you think the Clinton administration resorted to? a cover-up to avoid bad publicity during the Summer Olympics. Uh, you know, if a terrorist attack had occurred just two days before the start of the Olympics, it is likely, in my opinion, that the opening ceremonies would have been overshadowed by the security threats and fear that would have ensued.
2: Yeah, it would have been totally overshadowed. Uh, you know, there is a logic to a three-day cover-up, you know. Um, the You're right, the uh, incident took place July 17th, ninety-six. The Olympics opened in Atlanta on July 19, 96. Right, had they acknowledged a missile attack on the airline and left it uncertain as to who fired that missile, uh, they would have had to shut down aviation on the East Coast. That would have been a disaster, you know, and not only for our economy but uh, specifically for the Olympics, which uh, Clinton was going to use as a showcase. He was, he was in total re-election mode. Yeah, that's that's a given. Um, and it, it was not unlike what happened in with Benghazi in uh, 2012. You're in the midst of a very uh, testy re-election battle. You have a, natu- a national security disaster on your hands. So what do you do? Well, you kick the can down the road past November and hope for the best. That's what I think happened here. I think it was fully improvised from the beginning. I don't think they had a real plan. I just think they... So, they could, see, let's see, what can we get away with? Once they realized they could get away with not a missile, then they moved, moved to the next step, and then, then then they figured they could get away with not even a bomb, which is through mechanical failure. And amazingly, they got away with it.
1: Well, if we hadn't had the Olympics then, it was an election year, Yeah. do you think he would have resorted to blaming, say, Iran? That would have made him look so presidential back then.
2: He could have. He contemplated that, uh, you know, there's what I've what I've done, uh, Mel, is I've, uh, you know, to do this right. You have to read all the mainstream books on on the Clinton presidency, you know, because it's what sometimes what's not written about is more telling than what is written about. Of course. But he gave a series of uh, interviews to uh, a, I believe it was, who was he? Was it Michael Beschloss? one of these like fake historians. Um who was interviewing him periodically, day by day, and um, he talked about that, and he, he speculated. This is you know, like a few weeks after the crash that it might have been Iran, right? Now, by that time, he would have known, but he would have known night, day one, what, what really happened. But uh, I think they were still keeping that in the in the can as a possible, uh, you know, improvised explanation. To get them by the election.
1: For the listeners. The thing is,
2: once you start kicking that can down the road, you can't kick it back.
1: No, no. Exactly. Now, what was the, for the listeners, what was the Eisenhower option? And was that considered after the incident occurred?
2: Uh, Yes. I mean, allegedly it was considered. The Eisenhower option was like, uh, if I'm not, yeah, you you probably remember a little better than I do, but I believe it was for a, a, a really a full out smackdown of Iran. Uh, If that were the case, if this were the case. Now, the problem is when these people talk about this in their memoirs, uh, they don't necessarily tell the truth. So uh, like uh, Richard Clark, for instance, who is the the most talkative of all the Clinton insiders. I don't know whether to believe him when he says stuff like that, you know. Uh, What's more telling, I think, are uh, the people like Bill and Hillary Clinton in their memoirs. 1996. This was the uh, news story of the year in 1996. And you're right. Talk of the Eisenhower option. Uh, um, Dick Morris calls it the terrorist summer of 1996, right? There had already been a terrorist attack at the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia just weeks before this. There was terrorism in the air. And yet Hillary Clinton in her 600-page book gives it a half a sentence, right? Bill Clinton, in his 900-page book, dedicates one paragraph to this incident. We were allegedly in the brink of war, and and that's all it gets. And then I go through all the other people who don't mention it at all. Leon Panetta, Sandy Berger, Berger, George Stephanopoulos, blah, blah, blah. All these people are in the room don't even mention it, right? We're at the brink of war, and they don't even mention it in their memoirs.
1: So wasn't there a meeting with the all the the the, the Joint Chiefs of, chief of Staff and everyone else, and Clinton missed it, and instead he was meeting with with uh, Sandy Berger somewhere else, contacting yeah. the next step?
2: That's right, because Sandy Berger was the, the ultimate fixer. You know, he reminds me of Winston Wolfe in Pulp yeah. Fiction, you know, the guy you call when you need the mess cleaned up, you know, because he was totally unscrupulous. And, in fact, I believe it was— um, I believe that it was in, in regard to the TWA files and their connection to the Bojinka plot that uh, that Sandy Berger risked not only his reputation, uh, but his very freedom to go into the uh, archives in 2004 before his appearance at the, uh, before the 9-11 commission, and to steal stuff and destroy it. And he got caught by the uh, archivist who, bless his heart, uh, went public. Or I remember that. Yeah, Paul Brackfeld, uh, unspoken hero. There are heroes within the bureaucracy. Uh, The major media, though, even in two thousand four, didn't want to know them. So here, think about this, and think about the things like, you know, Trump has been accused of taking to Mar-a-Lago. We know that Sandy Berger, on three separate occasions, ignored all um, mandates. Otherwise, took documents, took them home, stuck them in his underwear and whatnot went home and shredded them, gets caught. And the DOJ recommends as penalty, a $10,000 fine. I mean, when people think today we have reached a point of uh, of, uh, a nadir in our relationship with the intelligence community, I'm sorry, Berger was ahead of the curve on that one.
1: What about Barack Obama and everything he took? What about Hillary Clinton and all the bleached uh, emails?
2: Yeah, all the hammering and the bleaching and the
1: <laughs> shattering of cell
2: phones. Uh, no, it's the the level right now is of, uh, you know, I won't say corruption because the real corruption, and I, I say this in the book and I've said this before, government agents always going to misbehave if they can get away with it. The one profession that has totally betrayed its craft is the media, the journalists. And I believe, uh, Mel, that, if this plane had crashed in, say, Kansas, we would have known the truth in about two or two or three days. But having in that it crashed in New York, in Long Island, the New York Times swarmed the scene. They owned this case, and the FBI only had to talk to the FBI. The FBI only had to talk to New York Times. That's all the only entity they talked to. And the course of this research, I interviewed the aviation. Uh, writer for the Washington Post, he was still pissed that the FBI wouldn't talk to him. They would only talk to the New York Times. So the New York Times got to call the shots on the story. And uh, after about one day, they were miscalling it intentionally.
1: Well, you mentioned the media. I think true journalism is extinct. Now they're just read the journalism from, that from matters the matters Now
2: is that is and I, in fact in my book um, Unmasking Obama, I. I went out and I identified all the people who broke the real stories about the Obama presidency. And none of them was a mainstream media uh, person, except for Cheryl Atkinson, and that cost her her career,
1: you know. So just for the listeners, in case they wonder, Jack, what the Eisenhower option is, the Eisenhower option was an informal term used to describe a policy of massive retaliation proposed by U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1953, it was a strategy of nuclear deterrence that proposed that any attack by the Soviet Union would be met with a full-scale nuclear response. The policy was intended to discourage any Soviet aggression by the threat of total destruction, in case anybody was wondering. Now, Bill Clinton, again, he had to be careful because he was running for president again, obviously, and he needed to just be you know, careful about this. But for five years after this event, the FBI, the CIA, and the White House avoided the subject of aviation terror until 9-11. Do you think that was planned?
2: Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, it may have led to 9-11, this silence, because they, you know, the the one other thread that was working through here was the whole Bojinka plot. And uh, this this was Ramzi Youssef, and uh, these are the guys who plotted both uh, the initial attack on the World Trade Center in '93, and and then the fatal—I mean, the really lethal one in 2001—but the Bojinka plot called for, and it was hatched out of the Philippines. Uh, there were a lot of there was a heavy Muslim radical population in the Philippines, and what it called for, and one one was a couple of items that uh, would come into play later, and I think came into play even. In the consideration of 800 one was the uh, the use of airplanes as as um, missiles, and the two possibilities that were either hijacking planes or uh, taking a you know a small private jet and filling it with explosives and attacking high impact targets, and no higher impact targets than as we found that on 9/11 in the World Trade Center. Uh, so that. Story uh, was the Clintons were aware of. Buzz Patterson talks about this, and he was the guy who carried the nuclear football for the president and wrote a book about it. Not a fan, and he talks about you know moving documents from one source to another and seeing, you know, uh, Clinton making handwritten comments on the Bojinka plot, and the. I don't think uh, in 2004 when the 9/11 commission came up, I think. I really think that the, the White House, uh, the Clinton White House rather, Clinton people, did not want Clinton's knowledge of Bojinka to become public. And uh, we know that there were handwritten notes on the documents. We know that some of the documents Sandy Berger purloined were unique. They weren't copies of copies. They were one of a kinds, which made his destruction of that, of those documents even more chilling and damning. So I think that was the link. And uh, the use of airplanes as missiles, as bombs. And I think, um, and I thought for a long time that, and I still don't rule this out, and neither the Sanders, was that the Navy on the night of July 17th was responding to what they at least believed was a... Uh, a um, a missile, uh, I mean, an airplane turned into a missile, an airplane loaded with uh, uh, high high explosives. That is a still a possibility that I can't rule out, and that the Navy's missile firing was done to take that plane out and it inadvertently caught TW-800. That, though, I would give as a 5% possibility, a 95% possibility, I would say just straight out, screw up.
1: I mentioned a video I saw years ago. If a memory search serves- me correctly, I remember this years ago, it's a, an African-American retired sailor who was allegedly on the Navy ship that launched the missile, and I believe it was the USS, U.S.'s car, and they were using commercial aircraft as simulation, and that's why their ship was on the path of many aircraft leaving JFK, but they were not supposed to have live missiles. Have you heard that before?
2: Yeah, I know. In fact, I've talked to the fellow in question. His name is William Teal. He's gone public exactly. And uh did you was say on, he's dead? Um, what's that?
1: Did you say he passed?
2: Oh, no, 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 he's gone public. He's gone okay yes. You know, I can use his name. I In my book, I didn't use his name. he He was on a USS car, which was not uh, a missile firing ship. His ship didn't fire missiles, but he, he was in the battle group that did. And what he talks about with very uh, clear um, memory, and very specifically, is, and he because he was in the combat information center. What they did to scuttle all information uh, related to that incident—you know, the things they had to shred, burn, bury, whatever—and then how they hightailed it uh, to Bermuda uh, with the order to any all involved to just say nothing to anyone about anything. National security, lose your pension, go to jail if you talk. Um, yeah, he's he's gone public with that, and I I've, I've been dealing with him over the years. Because he's trying to get the, uh, he tried to get his captain to own up to it, you know, his commander. Uh, he was very clever about that, but you know the guy was a little cleverer than he was. He was communicating with these people on Facebook. I mean, he's sincere. I, I don't doubt his sincerity per minute. There are limits to what he knows, and he knows there are limits. But he's willing to tell what he does know to, to the degree that he knows it. And you know, the question that I get asked which is probably the best question. Well, if it was the Navy, how come we haven't heard from sailors, blah, 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 You know, we hear that. I hear that all the time, right? Uh and it's not a bad question until you begin to see how this operates. And then you see the level of fear and anxiety and threat that can go down on anyone who has real inside knowledge. And if you don't have real firsthand, I fired, I pulled the trigger knowledge. Um, you're risking a whole lot for a whole little in return. And if a person came out to me, let's just say the guy who pulled the trigger came to me and said, "Jack, I'm the guy who pulled the trigger, and I can prove it." And I walked in into the New York Times and say, "Hey, here's the guy who pulled the trigger on C.W. Eight 100 They wouldn't want to talk to him. We've reached that point. They don't want to know. Total fluke. About uh, ten years ago, I had a one-on-one breakfast with the current publisher of the New York Times. And I walked him through this story, and at that time he was, you know, he was the heir apparent. Uh, no interest. In um, 2016, I had a uh, one-on-two lunch with uh, the then chairman of the NTSB. Not only was he not interested, he was hostile to the idea that there's information that he didn't want to hear. Uh, this is difficult. Uh, our own media, conservative media are no historically the higher levels of that media have been no help at all uh in 2016 i'll name names here i don't care i had a long conversation with jack fowler who's the publisher of national review and the only reason i got to talk to him is because we went to the same high school you know and so through alumni networks i was ever reach uh this is the same high school by the way that anthony fauci went to so you can I don't know what that means, but it's a New York City
1: high school, Jesuit high school in
2: New York. Um, and, did, you, uh, did you say Jesuit high school?
1: Yeah. There you go.
2: So it reminds me of the, uh, the the old joke. What's the difference between a Baptist
1: and a Jesuit? Tell me.
2: Baptist knows he's not a Catholic. Right? So it's, <laughs> anyhow, Fauci went to our school. Jack Fowler went there. I went there. And so I had, had Fowler on the phone for about a half hour. It's about the time uh, my book came out in July of 2016. I said, if you're really serious about defeating Hillary Clinton, you would uh, give me some space to tell this story, right? I said I could prove it upside down and sideways. And, and then he hesitated, he was hesitating, give me all this BS, and then I said to him, but maybe you don't want to defeat Hillary Clinton, do you? Then he got angry at me, you know. I said, he goes, just because we don't want Trump to win doesn't mean we want Hillary Clinton to win, you know. This National Review. And I said to him, I said, well, if you don't want Trump to win, then you kind of want Hillary Clinton to win. I mean, it can't be both ways. You can't have this both ways. But uh, uh, he wanted it both ways. So that went nowhere. You know, a curious um, incident in that regard is that the – Despite what we say today about the FBI being in a tank with Democrats, et cetera, the FBI um, agent, uh, special agent who headed the investigation, Jim Calstrom, in 2016 was Fox News's national security advisor. And uh, no one on Fox News was more publicly anti-Clinton than Calstrom was. In fact, he came out on the air and endorsed Donald Trump which probably cost him his Fox News gig. This is not too long before the election. So I got his um, uh, address from a private investigator friend of mine, and I sent him a a certified letter uh, saying to him, this is about, about a month before the election, or maybe a few weeks before. I said, Jim, I said, if you want to really make a difference in this election, if you really want to take Hillary out, now is the time to go public with what you know about TWA 800, right? So I send the letter, I vote absentee, and then to sit out the noise of the election, I go spend a couple of weeks in uh, the south of France, in Nice, to be literal, exact. And uh, so one night, about a week before the election, Mel, I'm sitting out. I, it was like so storybook. It was a beautiful evening. I'm sitting on this bench overlooking the Mediterranean and it's a public bench. It's about four or five people on though. it's a long public bench it's sitting there, French people, I presume. And I get a phone call and I look at my phone and says, Connecticut. I said, Oh, who's calling me from Connecticut? And then, uh, here's what I get. Uh, Jack Cashel. I said, yeah, he goes, the guy, the caller goes, I think, I think this. You, how the hell are you mad? <laughs> you know, I'd heard that Kalishman was a profane bully. And within 30 seconds, he totally lived up to his reputation, right? He goes, how dare you say this? And what really uh, bothered him is that I'd said in a letter, I said, one of the family members I'm in contact with, every time they see you on Fox News, uh, you know, dissing the Clintons, they see because they know you know the story that could bring them down, right? And the idea that the family members were against him was to him shocking and very unsettling. So I got him to calm down a little bit. And then, you know, we're talking, hey, we're on the same side of this, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, uh, so are you trying to tell me that terrorists took down that airplane? And I said, "I first of all, I couldn't believe his naivete or what, or maybe just so deeply in denial that he was, Unable to understand what he was saying. But uh, I said, no, I wish I were. I said, for a long time, I wanted to believe that it was terrorists. I said, but the weight of the evidence is overwhelming. That it was our Navy that accidentally shot down the plane. Now we really flew up, right? And here's where the story gets somewhat comical. He says to me, you know, you effing, effing this. You sound just like that effing Pierre Salinger who... Uh, in November of 1996, holds a press conference on the effing French Riviera, you know, saying that our Navy shut that right under, right? So I'm thinking at that time, boy, I hope he doesn't know where I am when I'm he's talking to me right now, right? Because if he was, if Salinger was on the French Riviera, I'm on the French Riviera, if we got a major French conspiracy going on here, but uh, no. Uh, Salinger was a uh, JFK's legendary press secretary, a former U.S. senator, and in November, just a day after the election, after Clinton was elected, Salinger is a good Democrat. He comes forward with press conference in in Cannes and in, on the Riviera, uh, in in conjunction with the French media, saying that yes, the Navy shot down the plane, and for which that month, the November of 1996, now. This is a year before we close the case. A year before we have a formal declaration of what did cause the uh, the destruction of the plane. Uh, the New York Times did four articles that month mocking Pierre Salinger. Pierre Salinger is that a, a flag on the you know Russian flag on the moon that kind of thing? Just they uh, trashing him, trashing the fevered brain of the internet. Uh, up and down, and with that said, and I talked to several people who responded like this. You know, when I asked them why they don't go public, they said, "You saw what they did to Pierre Salinger. Just think what they could do to me, right?"
1: What do you think about the word Arkanside, Jack? Mm-hmm.
2: You know, just talking to someone about this the other thing. You know, there is like a a list of fifty-six people that you know, not however many people, yes, who uh, crossed paths with the Clinton and ended up mysteriously dead. So someone said to me, do you really believe that 56 people were killed by the Clintons? I said, not 56. I said, well, what if the number is just one or two, right? Wouldn't that cause us to rethink the Clintons' place in history, right? Uh, I believe that the number is at least one or two, maybe more.
1: Well, those are the ones that we know. but I'm, I, I wrote a that, book that, that, about one of them. Oh, you did? Who? Which one? Vince, Vince Foster? Who? No, Ron Brown. Oh, well, hold on. By the way, your camera, and for the listeners, this is the first time we're using new technology, and I'm using it with Jack here. If you can lower the camera a little bit so you can be centered. Just, okay. There you go. Yeah. I, was oh, seeing... I wasn't sure
2: we were doing video
1: here. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, no, perfect. Okay. Um, Rum Brown, I didn't expect that you were going to mention Rum Brown, but I believe he was going, he was the Secretary of Commerce, correct?
2: Right. And, and this is a you know, uh, after the TWA book came out, First Strike, that I did with Sanders, it came out in 2003, I think, um, or two, and I got a, it did well, and the publisher came back to me with a contract, and said, how would you like to do a book on another plane crash, and then around Ron Brown? And uh, they offered me a nice advance, and I said, uh, I will, you know, not used to being a conspiracy theorist yet, I said, I will uh, do this project with one understanding, and that, namely that is that if Uh, The evidence leads me to believe that Ron Brown's plane crashed because, hey, stuff happens. You've got to go with that. I'm not going to force a a conspiracy uh, onto this incident, right? Ron Brown died in a plane crash on April 3rd, 1996, just like roughly three or so months before uh, Flight 800 went down. And um, would that be, yeah, three months, three and a half months. Um, So I took the assignment. Ron Brown was Clinton's commerce secretary, his most popular black politician in America, 1996. He was also incredibly corrupt. And so what I focused on was why the plane went up in the first place. And I figured if, uh, and I would, I would write the book about the level of his corruption, his uh, trips to China, especially. He was the uh, bagman for Clinton. And the, when they were hoovering up cash, in the run-up to the 96 election, the desperate effort they made to get re-elected after their debacle in November, 94, when they lost left the House for the first time in 40 years, 40-something years, lost the Senate. I mean, total wipeout. And the party didn't even want him as the candidate in 96. So to do it, he had to do it uh, almost single-handedly. And that meant taking over the DNC and using it to raise cash in every which way possible which meant millions and millions of Chinese dollars coming from the CCP long before Biden got into this. The Clintons were the ones who opened the floodgates. It's the great unreported story of, of that time. The Monica was a relief for the Clintons. It took the media's eye off the ball. But uh, so I did that. And as I get into it, I realized, you know, gosh, I guess I'm going to be a conspiracy theorist for life because... The evidence strongly points to the destruction of that plane by Croatian intelligence working as a proxy for the Clintons. That was 35 bodies, and those bodies aren't even added usually to the Arkansas accounts.
1: What about the story of him having a shot to the head, behind the head? And also, was he involved—well, they say that he was killed because of his involvement in a Whitewater scandal. Do you lend credence to that?
2: Uh, you know, I just said that one at a time, Whitewater, no. Uh, scandals beyond Whitewater, more important scandals. The uh, helping me, you know, what I tried to do when I write a book is to, uh, and I've written about 15 now, is to write about people. I like to see writing books about people doing good things, not just bad things. And so the two people who were instrumental in helping me write the Ron Brown book were, uh, one was Kathleen Janosky. The forensic, and she they both become good friends. She was the forensic photographer for the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, who discovered the hole in Brown's head. That's not a myth. That's true. Uh, the other one was Nolanda uh, Butler, who was um, uh, Ron Brown's mistress and business partner, who knew the story inside and out. Total truth teller, good Christian lady who saw the light, repented, and started telling the truth that no one wanted to hear. So... To answer each, each of those questions, Janoski is uh, working with the Armed Forces Pathology. The bodies of the 35 dead on this Air Force plane, including six Air Force personnel, come back to Dover, uh, you know, for their examinations and whatnot. And you know, the team of pathologists, you know, is examining them. She sees Ron Brown's body laid out on the on the slab, and as she says, there were no visible marks on him that could have killed him, you know, a few scratches and scars went on. And then she says she's standing on a stepladder taking photos overhead, and she says, hey, look at the hole in the top of Ron Brown's head. And it was later measured to be 0.45 inches, you know, beveling inwards. Uh, When when Janoski and three of the pathologists who were involved in the case went public, they all had their careers ruined. And I, I talked to Janoski all the time. We're still we're still close zero all the time. Um, yeah, totally ruined their career. Uh, they were cashiered out or, or demoted so badly that they had to leave the Navy. Uh, the uh, head X-rays, which revealed what it was called a lead snowstorm inside the brain, um, mysteriously disappeared, and uh, the whole thing stinks. There was no autopsy, right? <laughs> Uh, despite the fact the pathologists are clamoring for him. no autopsy, uh, the fact that he was he died on uh, April third, and Martin Luther King died on April fourth, the Clintons used to conflate the two two great black men dying for the cause, right? I mean, and here's the bizarre thing that this should have been newsworthy in and of itself, and I walked this around the the room newsrooms of Washington, saying, "Okay, forget about." It why the plane crash, forget everything else. But in 2004, this was a big story that wouldn't have been in 96. Ron Brown went to Croatia to broker a sweetheart deal between the neo-fascists running the Croatian government who are indebted to the Clintons and a certain American corporation, much in the news in the early uh, part of the 21st century, and Ron, right? Oh. <laughs> And the Enron executives took their own jet. Right? They didn't get on that Brown plane. They, they probably knew a little better than them. And uh, the story gets weirder. Uh, uh, I hired a, a, a Croatian interpreter to help me with the uh, stories coming out of Croatia. And uh, I'm running through uh, some, you know, just researching on the Internet for news about that, the crash, et cetera. And um, I run across this story in Croatian, in the Croatian equivalent of People magazine, in which a uh, uh, a, a woman uh, is pictured at an event. She's booksome, redheaded, like and a second woman, probably mid-40s. Uh, she's standing in the middle of two other women. And she has her arm, they all have their arms around each other. And on the right of this woman is Alexis Herman, who was then, uh, who had been the labor secretary under Clinton, a black woman who was also the trip advisor, the one who arranged Ron Brown's fatal journey, right? On on this woman's left arm is none other than, guess, Hillary Clinton, right? (laughs) It doesn't get any better. Uh, So I call my Croatian interpreter and I said, the woman's name, by the way, the Croatian-American's name is Zdenka Gass. And I, I call her and say, what am I reading here? <laughs> you know, how is it that Zdenka Gass is at this event with uh, uh, the Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, uh and uh, I'm sorry, the, I'm just drawing blank another woman's name. But the, uh, and she says, oh, uh, they're at, A wedding reception for Alexis Herman is the other woman. Alexis Herman got married in a White House, and Zdenka Gas was invited. And so I'm thinking, okay, she must have been a big donor or whatever. No, Zdenka Gas was the liaison between Enron and the Tujmans, the neo-fascists who ran Croatia, right? So I get a hold of the Air Force report, and there's a story on that. And I see, uh, I'm reading up about Zdenka Gas. Uh, Zdenka gas was supposed to be on a Ron Brown plane. And at the last minute, she gets off and gets on the Enron plane. So the Enron plane lands safely. The Ron Brown plane, we're told, is destroyed in the biggest storm that hit that area in 40 years. A total made up story. All the other planes landed safely in that party, including the Enron plane. So I go into the interview section of uh, the Air Force report to find out what Zdenka Gas had to say. Well, the Air Force interviewer talks to uh, this guy named Peter Dalbraith, who was the uh, ambassador to Croatia at the time. And he tells the Air Force interviewer, you know, the person you really got to talk to, he's being pretty naive here, is Zdenka Gas. She was the liaison. She was the one who chose not to get on the plane, etc." cetera. So uh, now I'm really racing through these interviews saying, oh, I got to read this interview with Zdenka Gass. There is no interview with Zdenka Gas. 175 people were interviewed by the Air Force. Zdenka Gas, I read them all, is not there, right? Now, first of all, I have to tell you how I got a hold of this Air Force report. I'm writing this now, this book, uh, seven years after the crash. And I find out about the Air Force report. I, I have been working with a uh, summary, about a 100-page summary, which I thought would have been adequate. But now I I decided that I better get into it. I see if I can get a hold of the original. So I I go trace it down to Ramstein, Germany, there's Air Force base there. And I get a email back from some functionary there. And the functionary says, uh, well, sorry, this is gonna cost several thousand dollars. There's only a paper copy available. It's 22 volumes and it'll take us months to process, blah, 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 blah. So I emailed them back saying, "Listen, I don't need either the money, or the, or the uh, the time." And besides, I was writing about the book about why the plane went up, not why it came down. Then I get an email back from a colonel, and the colonel says, "We're waiving all fees, and the report will be there within a week." Right? A week later, a UPS truck arrives, and the report is so big that they have it's on a pallet. Right? And I'm, I'm in a second-floor office with no elevator or anything, so they keep walking up these steps, box after box of information. And it was total mind-blow. And I gave half of it to my uh, – the technical half I gave to the TWA pilots I'd gotten to know working on that project, and the other half I kept to myself to go through the, uh, the reporting, the interviews, all that sort of thing. And we all came to the conclusion at the end, yeah, that the plane had been lured off course intentionally into a Croatian mountainside. First time ever. History of that airport. And six Air Force people were killed. Someone in the Air Force was very unhappy about it. They also ruined the careers of 16 other people, including the highest-ranking black officer in the U.S. Air Force, for the alleged crime of allowing the plane to fly into that base. Wow, and That's the way
1: they roll. So did he die on the plane crash, or you think he was killed after?
2: I think he was killed after. Um, there was a huge misdirection after the crash. The uh, NATO was told that the plane veered off to the Adriatic side, you know, which was which is actually the natural course you we were taking. If you couldn't land, you'd circle out over the sea and come back in. But in fact, it went into it was lured, I believe, my pilots believe, it was lured into the mountainside with a, a process that was used a lot even during Vietnam, certainly during World War II called meekening. Where you put up a false radio beacon and lower of the plane, and since the uh, you know the navigational controls at the airport were destroyed during the war, which just had ended you know months earlier, I mean the place was still war torn and and uh, not fully civilized. Uh, I believe it was Lord of course. I believe that uh, it crashed into a mountainside. Uh, it wasn't until four hours later that the legitimate Croatian, you know, search and rescue people got there. By that time, one there, one woman was one uh, flight attendant, a uh, Air Force personnel was still alive, uh, and Brown by that time was dead. He was lying separate from the plane, and as I mentioned, there was no uh, vi- visibly fatal marks on his body. Otherwise, uh, I believe they got there. The original, I, I believe, Croatian intelligence got there immediately. They knew where it went. They got there. They had their uh, marching orders. They didn't care about the other 34 people. They just wanted to make sure Ron Brown was dead. And I think what they did was give him the coup de grace, you know, just to make sure a bullet in the top of the head and scalp, or you wouldn't even notice it if you're looking, unless you just having to see it from the top of his head. And uh, the woman, uh, there was a lot of rumors about the, the woman who survived. I, all of them false, as far as I could tell. Uh, you know, she was not killed by, you know, someone, she was, she was uh, uh, catastrophic injuries when they found her in the back of the plane. And I think they did a, I made a serious effort to, this is in the middle of the rain. Now it's storming. It wasn't storming when the plane landed. Now it's storming. They had to carry her, a uh, hand carrier down to the basin mountain. And she died by the time she got to the hospital.
1: Mm-hmm. You're opening so many doors, John, you know, in addition to TW800, You like to discuss people, and I'm thinking you mentioned the Bajinka plot, and I'm thinking that would have been Pope John Paul II's second assassination attempt, right? Because I look back on May of 81, that's when uh, he was uh, shot first, and if you go back to March of 81, we have Reagan. It seems that they, Reagan, John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, they were united during that time. It's like synonymous of the 80s and the Cold War. But let's go back for a second to Reagan. You probably remember this. That day, Hinckley and Hinckley's brother allegedly having dinner with Bush's, one of Bush's sons. I don't know if it was Neil or Marvin. And the media didn't talk about this, but the Hinckley family was one of the biggest contributors to the Bush family. Do you believe that it was the Bush family who orchestrated that? Because, you know, Reagan didn't want him as his VP. And that would have been a shoo-in. Reagan's gone. Now His Poppy Bush. Well,
2: you know, this—that's mean, one of those cases where, you know, there's a logic to they're having tried to kill him. I don't think that was the case, though. I think what may have happened is is that Hinckley may have heard talk around the family, you know, like, uh, you know, like in the, was it the, uh, Henry II and uh, Thomas Beckett, you know, mm-hmm. was someone please rid me of that troublesome priest, you know? Um, I don't believe so. I believe that was what it, I believe that was about Jody Foster. I mean, I may be wrong, but I'm willing to listen. But you're right; there were assassination attempts on the Pope, on, on, on the triumvirate that brought down the Soviet Union. The Pope, uh, Pope John Paul II, Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher's Margaret Thatcher's was almost successful too. But I believe that was an IRA plot. You know, they blew up her hotel, I believe, in Brighton. And uh, the Pope's guy was a, I believe, a Turkish national, but I believe he was an employee of the KGB. I believe the Russians tried to take out the Pope. Soviets did.
1: What a contrast! What a contrast between John Paul II and the new Pope that we have, the Jesuit. What do you What do you think of this new woke Pope?
2: You know, I try not to talk about popes. <laughs> I'm mean, uh, still practicing Catholic. I try to give him a little little wiggle room. You know, this guy, I bet all the wiggle room I can give him. Uh, the uh, you know, it's interesting too, is that. Uh, uh, Benedict, John Paul II was, I think, one of the great popes of our time, but, uh as was his successor, John, uh, Pope Benedict XVI. As it happens, I did a documentary for the traditional movement of the Catholic Church in Rome in 1998, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the reauthorization of the Latin Mass, in the course of which I interviewed Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger one-on-one uh, for the documentary. And then here's where all these threads come together, and his stories are almost too incredible. But in 2005, April 2005, I was in Paris for a media
1: conference, a French media conference
2: on TWA 800.
1: Hold on, hold on for a second. I don't mean to interrupt you, but we have to break the first segment with the second one. And this is a good segue, a good cliffhanger for part two. How can people buy the book, TWA Flight 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and the conspiracy
2: you know I would say right now the best way is to just go to Amazon and buy it that's the way we keep score you know I buy my books to the Barnes and Noble just to afford Amazon but the publishers look at Amazon numbers so go to Amazon.com TW800 Crash Cover Up Conspiracy uh, my name is Cashill C-A-S-H-I-L-L so just put that into Amazon or just go to my website Cashill.com and won't uh, you can't buy the book there but it'll tell you where what other books are available
1: You know, Jack, you're opening more doors. I didn't expect you to be opening more, but since you're giving me permission to ask you these questions, I will, and we'll get deeper into the rabbit hole when we get back. This is Mel Haslerik. My special guest is Dr. Jack Cashel. Much more when we return. Don't go anywhere.
0: Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have Rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback. Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.